podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This is the Ridiculous Ashes podcast. I'm Dan Lipke. With me is Alex Bowden. Hello. We are covering historical Ashes series to find out which nation is more ridiculous at cricket, England or Australia. And we are just about to wrap up the 2013 Ashes. Yes, fifth, fifth test of the series. So uh, we don't really need to explain this too much. But basically, we pick out the most ridiculous moments from each test match, uh, go through them and uh, pick out our favourites. Um, Dan nominates for Australia. I nominate for England. And we award points uh, to the most ridiculous moments. Three, two, one points for the top three. Uh, the series is 1-1 after a drawn fourth test. All to play for. Yes, so this is a this is the clincher. Ian Bell's series-long heroics weren't quite enough to carry the day over Australia's one-hour collapse and Chris Rogers and Shane Watson's non-opening partnership in the in the fourth test. So that was a draw. Yes. Uh, and now, yeah, 1-1, one, one, uh, all to play for. So yes. what actually happened in the fifth test? Then? Yes, well, Australia won the toss and they uh, elected to frolic their way to 492 for nine declared. Uh, Shane Watson scored his highest test score, 176. Steve Smith uh, made his first entry in international cricket. He finished on 138 not out. And in reply, only one England batter got past 50. They did manage, despite that, to reach 377 all out. But they did so on the fifth day because there was a rained out fourth day, which seemed certain to doom the match to a draw. Uh, But Australia did thrash their way to 111 for six declared. And that declaration came at T on the final day, which meant England had either one session to score 227 for a win or collapse and be bowled out for a loss or as it turned out get uh, within 20 runs of victory with four (laughs) overs and five wickets remaining when bad light terminated play. Uh, The match was therefore a draw. England had to settle for a mere 3-0 Ashes win. Yes, it was uh, was a draw in actual terms but in ridiculous terms we're going to decide the result now. Yes. Um, I well my my first nomination certainly makes sense first because it's selectorial one. Mm. This match is probably like in England best remembered as being Simon Kerrigan's well Simon Kerrigan's test match <laughs> I was going to say his debut but uh, I think the odds of him playing a second test are not high uh, yes he's playing okay but I, I think his time has gone well, and when you say Simon Kerrigan's test you don't mean like uh, Botham's test or Flintoff's <laughs> test or Stokes' no, test no not in that, not in that respect uh, just his experience within the test I suppose is a better way of putting it yes England's team selection for this match was pretty odd. Uh, experimental, really, with them 3-0 off. And it, it does feel a bit like they were getting ahead of themselves. We can only really guess at the reasoning, but the, the circumstances were that t- I think Tim Bresnan was injured, so he needed replacing. Uh, but at some point during these uh, select uh, conversations, they also decided to drop Johnny Bairstow, which I, <laughs> okay. I don't know if that came first or whether it was a consequence of who they picked to replace Bresnan or what. But fundamentally, they had a choice between, I think, Chris Tremlett, who couldn't bat, or Chris Chris Wokes, who could to replace mm-hmm. Tim Bresnan, and they went with Chris Wokes. And uh, it was Chris Wokes' debut as well, it should be mentioned. Yes. Uh, so he was a bit of an unknown quantity at test level. And as is always the case with any English seam bowler who has made a first class 100, they thought, oh, maybe he could be the new Ian Botham. <laughs> so uh, they almost like reflexively uh, put him into bat at number six, mm-hmm. uh, at which point. 
yeah, Besto was out. I don't know what order those things happened, but that yes. was that was the uh, that was the long short of it. So it was Wokes at six, and then Matt Pryor at seven. It does not make sense with hindsight <laughs> corner. Hindsight corner. I don't know. Maybe it didn't really make sense at the time either. Yeah. But yeah, let's see if he can be our all rounder. And at this point, uh, they can then pick another bowler, and they presumably thought we've got enough seam bowlers. It's the oval at the end. We need another spinner. Monty Panasar had almost literally pissed away his chances of playing <laughs> second spinner with our whole nightclub thing that we covered earlier in the series, where he got above uh, above the nightclub and urinated on a bouncer and got in uh, a little bit of trouble with that. Uh, next cab off the rank, as they say, was Lancashire Simon Kerrigan. Uh, England's spin bowling stocks are never like hugely deep. Uh, he, he was bowling really well uh, in first class cricket, but yeah, he was definitely sort of third choice spinner really in terms of ability. He played against. Australia for England Lions the week before and mm-hmm. Shane Watson had rather hammered him. Uh, nevertheless, he was picked <laughs> for the fifth test and Shane Watson rather hammered him again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's that's pretty much that that's that's really the story of of his test match. Uh, Simon Kerrigan came onto bowl. His first two overs went for twenty eight. Uh, watch it on the highlights. It feels like about forty five minutes worth of play because <laughs> you, your perception of time is this sort of uh, is different. You, you, so if you see sort of this many boundaries, you think, well, that must have been like half the afternoon session. Yep. But it was literally just they were showing every single ball of Simon <laughs> Kerrigan's over because he would obviously it was his first ball in Test cricket, and then there was a lot of fours and sixes, and then. They reached a point where a dot ball was almost newsworthy. They would kind of show that <laughs> as well. Uh, he eventually finished with none for 53 off eight overs, and then he didn't get to bowl in the second inning. It was not great bowling. Yeah, so I, I went back to Twitter, and my thoughts at the time uh, were, were, th- were this tweet. I am told that Kerrigan is a much better bowler than we've seen in this test so far, and I'm pleased for him because imagine if he wasn't. <laughs> that's, yes, that's, that's entirely fair. Uh, yes. So, as I say, he's never he's never played for England since, and almost certainly never will. But I mean, as a counterpoint to this, while everyone remembers his bowling in this match, no one remembers his batting. Mm. One not out in his only Test innings. Yep. So he never took a wicket in international cricket, but he was never dismissed either. Ne- never involved in a wicket in any way. And I suppose the other great contribution he made really was that uh, it was a nice distraction for Chris Wokes, who had a pretty ordinary Test match really <laughs> on his debut, but. It was the kind of thing it was pretty easily overlooked with uh, Carrigan sort of blobbing up uh, full tosses and long hops. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, that probably segues neatly to, to my first nomination. My first nomination is uh, Figure of Fun Tons, or <laughs> a, a, a.k.a. Uh, Watto and Smith Centuries. So as, as we mentioned, uh, Watto was, was mostly a figure of fun at this point in his career. He, you know, everybody was like, oh, God, he's going to review again. Um, yeah, particularly you know, during this series, it's probably exactly. like reached a, the climax, really. Yes. But this test, he, he was not a figure of fun. He, he, this was almost certainly the best I've seen him bat. He, he came in at three to join Chris Rogers uh, again, which uh, w- w- was another new batting position for Watto. He'd been up and down the order a few times. <laughs> a pretty good one, because yeah. he made 176. So. Yeah, uh, as, as you mentioned, he was ab- absolutely having none of Kerrigan. He just brutalised him. He uh, Savage pulls, drives, e- everything. He was just absolutely merciless on poor old Kerrigan, who, as, as you mentioned, he, he had, had an early sider on in the match the, the week before and uh, quite quite like the look of him yeah and and pretty much the only way to get rid of him was uh an excellent catch in the deep uh which had a, a 
and I, I really like this. Uh, it was Stuart Broad bowling, and in the process, almost bowling a no ball. They had to go back and check the front foot on that one. We also had uh, Kevin Peterson taking a very good catch, but also because he's KP, putting a little bit of flair on the dive at the end. <laughs> and, and that was all to dismiss uh, Shane Watson. And I, I can't really think of a better trio of ridiculous cricketers to be involved in a wicket. That's uh, that's like chef's kiss uh, stuff. Yeah, so, certainly from this era. That's, yes. that's yeah, sort of podium of uh, ridiculousness. <laughs> yes. So uh, when, when he was finally out, uh, as we mentioned, he had scored 176. Australia, uh, as a team, had only scored 289, which mean, meant that Watto had scored 60.9% of the runs in the innings to that point, which is not quite Bannerman territory, but it's not that far away either. He had been absolutely um, dominating the entire innings. Yeah, it's not like 60% of like 90 runs. Yes. <laughs> 289 were sort of well into the well into the match. But one thing I liked about it was when he was out, uh, it's just very, very Shane Watson. He just looks so incredibly puppy dog side about being dismissed. Yes. It was his absolute brutal destruction for hours <laughs> on end, this gigantic orc of a man. And yet somehow Watto still ends up looking like the victim at the end of it, which is, I think, his calling card, really. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like that. I, I feel like Cameron Green, picked up that mantle now Cameron Green's this big colossus of a young young lad and he likes to give it a bit of a thump and when he's out he always looks so so desperately <laughs> sad as well or when someone hits him for a six he also looks sad he's uh wears his heart on his sleeve much like what I always did yeah there's batters who are furious to be out and there's batters who are like almost in tears to be out what I was definitely an almost in tears to be out but... yes well one of the ones who uh as we've learned a little bit of hindsight corner here is, is tends to be more in the in the furious camp when he's out is uh, the only bigger figure of fun in the Australian team at the time, uh, which was uh, Stephen Smith, uh, who, as we discussed right back at the beginning of this series, was mostly in the team to crack jokes and keep the dressing room a happy place. <laughs> so no one, no one was taking him seriously, and pretty much until this innings, where he made 130 not out, as we mentioned, it was his first Test hundred. And uh, he batted pretty much uh, like what we now know as pure Smith. Uh, we, we did get a ki- couple of glimpses uh, of that earlier in the series, but, but not, nothing quite to the extent of this one. This was, this was just sustained uh, Smithness. Uh, <laughs> I, I began, uh, I began uh, pretty much you know, right, right at the start of his innings. He was on one and he advanced down the pitch to Swan and just lofted him for six pretty much effortlessly. And uh, Jeff Boycott on commentary declared it to be risky. Uh, didn't, didn't slow Smith down much i think that's just a reflex from jeff <laughs> whenever the ball is not on in the ground. contact with grass yes <laughs> yes so uh that wasn't the only six he uh he also brought up his century with a lofted six off uh the bowling of jonathan trott which perhaps shows how desperate uh england were getting at that point <laughs> and uh and then you know at, by that stage australia started looking for some declaration runs and and he came up with this shot where he somehow swatted a bouncer from outside his off stump at about shoulder height and he managed to somehow get it to to the deep mid-wicket boundary, uh, which you know by itself might have been worthy of a ridiculous nomination. If it's the shot I'm thinking of, it's the one where he played it front on. Yes. Basically, his, his front leg, he basically, for reasons which don't entirely make sense what we've given where the ball was going, his, his front foot just sort of launches towards deep square leg, and he's in this huge sort of wide-legged front-on position, and he just sort of pans it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, I'm, get, I'm going to indulge in a, 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 quite a lot of Hindsight Corner here now hindsight because uh, this corner. really was the, the start of the, the Steve Smith legend period, basically. He averaged 29.52 coming into this test. It took him eight further tests and three centuries to boost his average beyond 40. Obviously, this test got him beyond 30. Yeah. Then five more tests after that to boost his average beyond 50. So in 13 <laughs> tests, he'd gone from an average of 29 to beyond 50. Although, to be fair, it took him ages to get his average beyond 60. So, <laughs> um, and, and kind of look at it another way. His first 11 tests, he averaged 29.52. This was the start of his second set of 11 tests, during which he averaged 53.82. And then in his third set of 11 tests, Test, he averaged 91.76 so lots of hindsight corner there but uh and probably nobody at the time really believed based on this one innings that he would transform into this kind of insatiable run scoring monster but it was uh definitely kind of a glimpse of something that we did not expect from steve smith whatever jokes we'd all made uh previously seemed suddenly on very shaky ground <laughs> I like this um, mechanic of breaking a, a player's career down into 11s, mm. into batches of 11. Is that yeah. a thing we should do? <laughs> yes. Strange to take 11 tests to decide you're going to sort yourself out and then sort yourself out so rapidly. <laughs> right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move into a, a, a fairly familiar one, really. And <laughs> um, I've basically nominated it before in a previous test match. That's Alistair Cook's unfunky captaincy. Yeah. I always say unfunky because it's in sort of marked contrast to Michael Clark. <laughs> Describe, was it uh, Shane Warne who described it? I think, yeah, Shane, Shane Warne yeah. did, did like to use the term funky captaincy quite a lot. Yeah, so that became a sort of cliche about Michael Clark, And uh, yeah, the two of them set against each other. <laughs> it, it shows Alistair Cook's uh, way of working uh, all, all the clearer, I think. <laughs> so like I said, this is a close cousin of my third test nomination of Cook's use of part-time bowlers. Yep. He's reluctant to use them, really. Uh, and again, in this test, his bowler favouritism is just equally apparent. <laughs> In that third test, in Australia's first inning, uh, Alistair Cook had used his four frontline bowlers for 141 out of 146 overs. So clearly when things aren't going that well, trying something different is not uh, Alistair Cook's (laughs) taste. Just persevere with plan A. Plan A, it's plan A for a reason. Why would you ever resort to plan B? Plan A was the best one. That's the best plan. Plan B, by definition, is is an inferior plan, yes. (laughs) So uh, in this test, he had five frontline bowls at his disposal, and he used four of them for 118 overs out of 129 in Australia's first innings. <laughs> I mean, obviously that was greatly influenced by Simon Kerrigan's first two overs in particular. But still, he's, you know, he's not making up that shortfall anywhere else. The remaining three were bowled by Jonathan <laughs> Trott, as you've pointed out, who bowled yep. Brad Haddon with a pretty filthy wide one off the inside edge. Yes, eight feels like generous for Kerrigan, given what we knew. I, I I think uh, flip them around, give Kerrigan three and uh, maybe trot eight. Yeah, it's the kind of part like dibbly dobbly part time medium pace of it. He's got the look. He's yes. Not tall. He's not tall enough to be bolding. To be bolding. <laughs> <laughs> to be, well, he's that's another thing that uh, quite often part time bowlers are a bit bold. He's a bit short. He just doesn't look like he should be bowling. And of course, it's going to be dibbly dobbly medium yeah. pace. What else would it be? Yeah, I I, I I always forget that Trot occasionally bowls. So it was quite startling to see him coming in and bowling. I, I looked at him and thought, who the hell is this bowling? Because it was just this little bald man running in. And I was just like, what? what's going on here so yeah always very startling to see him have a spell it's the same kind of vibe i get whenever i saw you know ricky ponting or damian martin bowl 
medium pace. And it's just like, what's what's going on here? Ponting's a really, really similar bowler, that mm. sort of vibe. So that was the first innings. And then in the second innings, with Australia pushing for a declaration, Alistair Cook paired things back a bit further. <laughs> the innings was admittedly only 23 overs long, but he only used three three bowlers for that. Yep. Uh, and he was back to his, his absolute favourites, Anson Broad and Swan. If he could have just rotated those <laughs> for the rest of his captaincy career, he'd have been happy. Yes, uh, I, I believe if there are six tests, he probably might might have just gone Anderson and Broad for 180 overs. <laughs> Plan A. Plan, well, there are opening bowlers for a reason. <laughs> Why would we use anybody else? Yeah. And uh, then, but there's uh, another aspect to this, which is of course uh, batting. Well, you're not as influential as a captain, but chasing 227 in 44 overs, you got mm. potential to do something that no went with exactly the same batting <laughs> order as the first innings. <laughs> You got to admire how incredibly inflexible Alistair Cook was. Yes, yes. I, I've often made jokes that are sh- that you know work on the basis that Alistair Cook was some kind of robot cricketer, and th- this kind of stuff is exactly why. It's just like <laughs> yeah, just a magnificent automaton of a, a cricketer. Just I'll turn out the runs. I'll turn out the captaincy with the same kind of methodical approach. Okay, so my next nomination is kind of semi-related to your first one uh, because this was also James Faulkner's Test debut and also James Faulkner's sole Test. So he was he was given his first and probably much like Kerrigan only test cap uh, Ashton Agar had been sent home because he was sick apparently um, presumably sick of not being selected for Australia hey. <laughs> so Faulkner came into the into the side um, and and he he got figures of 4 for 51 in, in, in the first innings which seemed pretty good right yeah I mean those are those are really tidy figures a couple of against second quick runs it just seems a really like solid test match for someone who only played yeah. one test like how do you take 4 for 51 and then bye like, that's it yeah it was very strange uh, the the wickets the, the wickets kind of they, they started off kind of spectacularly uh, the first one was this diving one-handed catch down the leg side to get rid of Ian Bell the, the summer of Bell the, the ultra <laughs> nemesis and then uh, there was another diving catch this time from Mitchell Stark who raced around from mid on uh, and he got uh, rid of a skied shot from prior so it was, it was all all very spectacular to begin with yeah uh, and that sort of dive of Starks um, he, he nearly ended up in the sand <laughs> yes. which is a thing I've never seen happen on a cricket field yeah i would very much like to see yeah anyway i got, got a bit boring after that a regulation caught behind and then a, then a he bowled swan to end the innings he got uh two two wickets in the second inning so six wickets for the match and he also had uh two good declaration batting innings uh both both times he came in australia were looking for quick runs he got 23 off 21 and 22 off 22 both perfectly acceptable i would have thought i mean like particularly in contrast to like simon kerrigan the, yes. the, the two of them both the same outcome ultimately but yet different very different contributions to this particular task. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure Faulkner's too happy at being lumped in with Simon Kerrigan. It's a bit <laughs> sad for him. Okay, I'll, I'll move into my next one, which is, uh, well, it's the final one. England not really going for the win until the evening of day five, <laughs> which is, there's hindsight corner so here, cool. but looking at the match as a whole, it was weird the way England went about things. They just never really seemed interested until after tea on day five, which in terms <laughs> of like a sporting fixture as a, like, you know, a football match is long since over after that volume of play. But England just never really, uh, never really sort of pondering much until then. Yeah, leave, leave it, leaving it till the last 6% of the match is a, is a wild tactic. Yeah, I mean, so just to sort of give like how it panned out, at lunch on day one, Australia were 112 for one and England were already on the back foot. Yeah. So they were sort of not, I don't know, I mean... Obviously, they're going for the win in the sense that they're playing a cricket, a competitive yeah. cricket match. But it 
it's just it's towards the back of the mind and there's uh, the sort of conviction is not really there. They then batted with just incredible lack of intent. All of the top six made at least 25. We're saying it was this this innings where it was 150 and it, it was quite sizable. It's one of those weird innings where you're not quite sure how it adds up to, yes. to, to the total. But all of the top six made at least 25, but their strike rates were all in the 20s and 30s. <laughs> it was just drifting non-event of an inning. There was one passage of play where Ian Bell made five runs in 45 balls. It must have been... God. <laughs> and I, I presume that I was watching it. I don't know. I just kind of faded from memory. The, I, I may have gone a bit early on those days, I think. Yeah, definitely one to be in the opposite hemisphere. Yes. Uh, <laughs> when day five began... Day five? When day five began, they were 274 for four in their first inning <laughs> in 116 overs. So we've reached this point in the match. England, uh, you're not even halfway through their first innings. That's, yeah. that's how committed to victory they are. And I do seem to recall that Shane Warne was absolutely furious about this, as you'd expect. Uh, this is uh, where he was—he started his uh, kind of catchphrase of yeah, "you need to be willing to lose to win," and he was very upset that England didn't seem to be willing to lose the match by trying to score more quickly than this. And uh, no. we'll, we'll get to the counterpoint to that shortly. But uh, yeah, the, he, he was very annoyed with England for batting so slowly, and Alastair Cook in particular for not, you know, telling his team to hurry on with it. Yeah, I mean, a sort of passive, reactive captain, really. I was like, just waiting circumstance to come round in his favour. And then, lo and behold, <laughs> tea on day five as a declaration. And uh, they're asked to make 200-something in 40 yeah. overs. Uh, at which point, they had a proper tilt at it. They yep. just thought, all right, we can win this match. And just switched on. They'd just been kind of playing post till then. Yeah, very cunning, very sneaky. No, I, I don't kind of associate this kind of sneakiness with uh, England. It seems a little bit against the spirit of cricket to me, to <laughs> <laughs> to play dead for most of the test. Yes. All right. Well, that that leads me nicely into uh, into my final nomination, which is of course Michael Clarke's second innings declaration. Yes, uh, I suspected as much. I kind of preempted you a bit there, but uh, let's get to it. Yeah. So ba- basically, this was this was always looming because from very early on in this test, uh, Australia must have seen the weather forecast and seen that it was awful because uh, they they were declaration batting on day two with some violent cameos from uh, Faulkner, as we mentioned, and also Stark and Harris just coming out and having a thrash and uh on the evening of the second day after the first innings declaration uh root and cook were offered the light and australia weren't particularly impressed by this uh clark came up and he was like what's going on why why are you offering them the light and you know unsurprisingly the umpire's minds weren't changed they, they almost never are and the only reason i'm mentioning this is because this is just a, a brilliant piece of setup for how the test ends I, I have a theory that with all this foreshadowing that that's what caused the light to be so poor all the shadows <laughs> the weather just interpreted the narrative yes uh, and acted accordingly yes but the first innings declaration wasn't really the interesting one the the, the second innings was the was the interesting one uh Perhaps riled up by all this uh, Shane Warne lose to win speak, uh, he, he decided he sent, sent the team out, 111 for six declared in 23 overs. It began half an hour into the afternoon session of the final day. Uh, Chris Rogers was not, not to be seen. He, uh, he, he was just demoted all the way down to the tail because the batting lineup in that second innings was Warner and Watto to open. Uh, James Faulkner came in at three, then Brad Haddon, then Clark himself. Smith came in uh, after that, then Harrison Stark, and uh, poor old Rogers was left with Siddle and Lyon as uh, the, the ones that didn't get a bat. Just a wonderfully silly batting lineup uh, for that second innings. It's not quite names out of a hat, is it? But it's, <laughs> you, don't, you really don't know who's coming next. Australia, this, that was another theme of this. Is Australia hardly ever had the same batting lineup two innings in a row. I checked this. Yep. Uh, obviously, they tended to change team after each test. Yes. 
So you're never going to get like the same batting lineup, second innings one test, and first the next. But they generally change batting order during tests yes. as well. It was only the second and the fourth where they had the same batting order twice in a row. Yeah, and they were the two tests in which they performed the worst. In, in, the, te- yes. in the tests where they mucked about with the batting orders, they, uh, they lost by 14 runs in the first test, and then they dominated a couple of rainy draws. So clearly, uh, uh, you know, Michael Clark should have been mixing up the batting order you know, more often. Yeah, vindication. Yes. Anyway, after all this mad thrashing about, he, uh, he decided that uh, he, he was willing to lose to win uh, because he went over and knocked on the door of Alastair Cook at T and uh, set England 227 in 44 overs. Uh, so that's one session to bowl England out, which, uh, the, 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 you know, it's funky captaincy, but it's a very optimistic uh, funky captaincy, right? <laughs> England had both yeah. KP batting and Ian Bell in summer of Bell form. So I, I, those two were at you know, grave risk of running down 227 in 44 overs all by themselves. Uh, and uh, there were well, plenty of others. Well, not on first innings form. On, on first innings form, it would have taken them the best part yes. of three days. Yes, that's true. <laughs> true start. I don't know if, he was pl- if that factored into his calculations. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. So as, as you said, England uh, decided all of a sudden, despite sticking with the same batting order, let's not change uh, plan A. We'll stick with this. Uh, they ended up needing 21 off 24 balls when uh, Chekhov's light meter from back on day two returned <laughs> at the climax of the match and uh, and uh, the umpire said, nah, light's no good, we'll have to go off and uh, everyone was perfectly happy with that. Fair's fair, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, my, my, one of my favourite parts of this is um, Matt Pryor arguing that he can see perfectly well based on zero balls that he's faced <laughs> at this point in the match because he'd just, uh, just been a wicked. He'd come out, he'd not face anything at all. Then he'd say, no, I can see perfectly well. How do you know, Matt? You've not been there. <laughs> yeah. I I think Alim Dar was uh, press- pressured by Michael Clark to get the light meter out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Alim, then he's pushing him back with with this light meter, which is one of those sort of like head to heads you see. I don't know, like when there's a really bad decision and uh, the, the modern cricketers getting really irate about it, like hassle the umpire. It's more kind of a football thing, but mm. like it's such a wonderful cricket situation to be hassling somebody to check the light with your <laughs> light meter. So as all this is going on, Michael Vaughan um, on commentary, I, lis- I was listening to the, uh, him on the highlights and he says he'd have stayed out there if he was Clark. <laughs> you know, like proper, like lose to win. Yeah, I do like the idea that perhaps Alim Dar was pushing Michael Clark out of the road because Clark was, you know, the the shadow of Clark was upsetting the light meter. Conceivably. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And basically, a little bit of hindsight corner here. This was very similar to uh, the 2022 Women's Ashes. Uh, Meg Lanning did a, a similarly uh, generous declaration. Not quite as generous, but uh, there was also rain ruining a good chunk of the penultimate day in that one. And she set England 257 off 48 overs. And England were mostly cruising in that match. And then, but this one didn't have bad light intervening uh, to, to, to stop playing. Instead, the match played out to its conclusion, which was, you know, this thrilling draw, nine wickets down and 12 runs short of victory. So there were far fewer fans booing the umpires at the end of that match. <laughs> Maybe this one would have ended exactly the same uh, nine wickets down, 12 That would have been an exciting match yeah. if it got to that. Yes. Maybe that's what Michael Vaughan was arguing for yeah. with his uh, visions of the future. Yeah, could, could, could have still had a chance to win this. Why, why is Michael Clark so cowardly? No, not, not, not thinking he'd <laughs> take six more wickets in these last four overs. It's easy to commentate and like claim these things. It just seemed like they only need twenty odd runs, yeah. and they had loads of wickets left. Like, no, you wouldn't. You like, it wouldn't in a million years be arguing to stay out there. Like, are you kidding? Yeah. 
Yeah, so yeah, that's, so that's my final nomination. Okay. Uh, unnominated moments, then, have you got any? Yeah, I've, I've got a pretty good one, uh, which which I was trying to squeeze in there, but I couldn't work out a way. I, I basically squeezed uh, Watto and uh, Smith into one nomination. I couldn't work out how to get uh, Mitchell Stark's dismissal of Bell uh, into, in, in here, but it was really good. He, uh, Bell did a drive, and Mitchell Stark stuck his big boot out and stopped it in the follow-through, then kind of picked it up and spun around and hit the stumps with the throwback, and uh, poor old Ian Bell was trying to retreat back to his ground and couldn't get there. And uh, <laughs> I, I, one of the things I liked most about this, besides, besides the fact it was you know a ridiculously good piece of fielding, was uh, Mitchell Stark was furious about the whole thing. He, he gave a hearty fuck off to Ian Bell, uh, which, is, <laughs> which again, hindsight corner, it's, it's very out of character. He's mostly pretty smiling and pleasant most of the time. Like most fast bowlers have the occasional bad mood, but uh, for, for the most part, Mitchell Stark's generally pretty upbeat. Uh, but you know, it's, it's very possible that he'd been listening to Shane Warne, who was no doubt telling him he needed to show more intent yeah um it was quite yeah it was a new piece of field and i was just sort of like replaying it in my mind's eye then he he sort of stops it with his right boot yeah but it it ends up sort of like popping mm. the ball pops up in the air yeah. but slightly backwards so he he almost like shields uh the ball from the bat- batter's view i think from ian bell's view uh so he doesn't know what's going on bell sort of like belting down the uh, belting down the ground thinking it's gone past him but actually it's just chipped up nicely for him to grab and because he's left-handed mm. he just carries on turning and then he just he just sort of appreciates the situation opened up before him like ian bell's <laughs> alongside him so he's got a ball in his hand looking at the stop <laughs> square on and he just sort of throws him down not as an afterthought but just kind of like i don't know it's a very strange like sort of vibe to yep. oh, great wicket. another wicket that i enjoyed was uh peter siddle game bold um <laughs> which it just it's a weird one it's partly just that, that it highlights are not sort of like massive hd like crystal clear but it looks and sounds like he middles Anderson four. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the shot he plays and where the ball is, but the ball actually seems away. It, but actually, he's clean bowled and it just sounds like ball on bat because it's sort of like hit the uh, hit the timber so hard. Yes. Uh, well, my other one is just, it was actually before this test. It was before this test that Darren Lehman was fined for saying broad not walking was blatant cheating. Oh, uh, and he hoped that Austrians would really give him shit in the return series. Yeah. It's just important to remember that that was part of the backdrop it's kind of just uh kind of like throwing back to the uh, the broad not walking from uh, the first test yes. uh, this was like a a, a a ripple of that before the next series when we have uh, another wave of broad not walking stuff all right how are we going to vote for this one I, I, I'm I'm going to I'm going to put up uh, Michael Clark's declaration as as possibly one of the more ridiculous declarations that have uh, that has ever been seen on a cricket field. Yeah, because it is an Ashes Test and it is uh, generous. Uh, I mean, uh, he's partly just like uh, fallen in love with his own reputation yes. there, I think. But he's gone ahead and done it anyway. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty ridiculous, and the way it played out as well. Yeah, I also like the footage that they, they've got. They've got the footage of him, like in the tea break, just trotting down from the Australian dressing room and over to to the other one, and he does his little knock on the door and pokes his head in and yeah. says, "Here you go, guys." And, then, and I think England are like, "Holy shit, really?" <laughs> yeah, you don't normally see a declaration. Mm. Well, you do he's, when they call the yes. batters in, but like in the tea break, because of the way that. The ground is laid out that you actually see the scene like toddle across and <laughs> quick knock on the door. It's like, well, don't answer. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so yeah, uh, and kind of everything around it, like the, the the crazy change of the batting order to to get these runs, and just trying to manufacture you know a win out of what should have been a draw for no clear reason, but he, he went went ahead and did it anyway. Very ridiculous. Very yeah. Michael Clark. I love it. 
That is that is a really good one. I, I'm going to sort of whittle away one of mine because I think England not really going for the win to lay on is just totally hinges on this yes. happening. Like it could happen otherwise. So let's strike that one from um, from uh, eligibility. Uh, so I've got Simon Kerrigan's bonkers debut mm. and Alistair Cook's unfunky <laughs> captaincy again, which. I don't know. Again, like it's almost like uh, the yin and yang of Cook and uh, Clark. That, <laughs> yeah, that they both highlight each other's ridiculousness <laughs> through their own actions, actions or inactions. In Master Cook's case, yeah, they they definitely, uh, yeah, the, the 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 contrast between them helps uh, uh, make both of them seem more exact, exaggerated uh, comical figures, which which is very neat. So, what do you make of Simon Kerrigan's debut? I mean, so, uh, it is uh, it is very ridiculous to be selected for one test bowl. What did he bowl? First two overs for 28 runs. 28, uh, yeah. That was basically it. Uh, that, that, that was, was it, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a very ridiculous uh, test match for the poor guy. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I mean, you can't completely blame Cook for not giving him another go, although maybe you could have. I, I guess Australia were, like, sprinting along so rapidly that, you know, if, if Cook was even thinking about, you know, trying to prevent you know, Australia from declaring too quickly, he wasn't game to put Kerrigan yeah. back on. Well, uh, we, we, are, we are arguing that that diminishes Al- Alistair Cook's unfunky captaincy yes. there, don't we? It doesn't really add any funk to it, but uh, it makes it a bit less meat and potatoes yeah. than it uh, might otherwise be. It's a bit more comprehensible. Mm. Okay, well, let's let's relegate that a little bit. I, I don't... I attempted to go for Michael Clark's. Uh, uh, second in his declaration. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's kind of the 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 crux of the test. I, I think I mean si- Simon Kerrigan's good. I think Clark's declaration is is just crazy stuff. It makes the entire test uh, to my mind because you, you've got this kind of panic, like and, and the the way it just blows up in his face, where you know we, without the intervention of the light meters, and and that's another th- the perfect thing. Him being so furious about them on day two, and then them coming to his <laughs> rescue on day five. It's everything. Everything about it is delicious. I love it so much. <laughs> Uh, so well, let's go for three points for Michael Clark then. Yeah. Are we giving two to Simon Kerrigan? I think so. I mean, that, that's that's a very silly uh, debut and final test for Simon Kerrigan. Uh, so I think I think that's probably the strongest one. I, I I'd like to put in a, an argument for uh, Watto and Smith centuries. I know I know there's a lot of hindsight corner in the Smith one, but Watto Watto. This was ridiculously good batting from what I, which I guess is helped by Simon Kerrigan. So we're uh, again. Well, know, yeah, splendid. but I was I was going to argue the opposite really that uh, it is an interaction between two players. And Simon Kerrigan has come on to bowl to the guy who had hammered him in the previous match, or you know semi hammered him in the previous match, and that uh, I think will have had a huge impact on how he felt going to bowl, and mm. uh, then when Shane Watson immediately started playing as he feared, <laughs> as, as Simon Kerrigan. No doubt feared that he would. That would have just that that basically just unraveled everything from the outset for him. And I I think we always talk about our definition of ridiculous being good. Like it's more often than not, it's terrible cricket. Mm. Sometimes it's nonsense cricket, but it can be good cricket as well. And I think the way Shane Watson batted, I think, had such an influence on that uh, that passage of play. Yeah, maybe even. I mean, to be honest, if he's getting a point and uh, Michael Clark's getting three points, <laughs> then Australia have got the test anyway. But I don't. I'd almost be tempted to shunt Watto. I mean, Steve Smith in there as a sort of <laughs> yeah, um, just supporting, just rounding it a out. supporting role in the partnership. Yeah, um, yeah, maybe even uh, three points, two points to Australia, and just a point for uh, poor Sam Kerrigan. Well, I'm not going to argue that. One point to watch his one not out <laughs> and his one Test match. All right, I, th- I think that's perfect. Let, let, let's go that uh, for that then. So I, I think that means Australia do win the fifth Test, which means they claim the the 2013 ridiculous Ashes curses. <laughs> 
<laughs> I can't remember who won the 2013-14, so, but I, I strongly suspect it was England. So uh, Australia won't be holding the ridiculous Ashes for too long here. No, no, it's not with uh, Ashes coming thick and fast <laughs> in this era, every few months. Congratulations to Australia and uh, congratulations to you for listening to this uh, 2013 Ridiculous Ashes and thank you as well. And also special thanks to Pat Cummins for dropping by in the first test way back all those weeks ago. Yeah, cheers, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to Leah Schneider for providing us with DVD footage of this test series. And uh, we'll we'll be back a bit later. We, we don't quite know yet what our next series will be, so probably best to just subscribe to the podcast to find out. And of course, while you're doing that, uh, give us your honest five-star ratings. And uh, I think we've got a policy that the sooner we get to 100 five-star ratings and reviews, the sooner we'll record our next series. Uh, yes, that's the official policy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> until then, you can check out Alex's website. That's kingcricket.co.uk. Mine is liebcricket.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Ridiculous Ashes, at The King's Tweets, and at Lieb Cricket. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to support us with actual living money, Alex is at patreon.com slash kingcricket. I'm at patreon.com slash liebcricket. Give us both some money, and we will see you next time. Bye. See you. Sports Social Podcast Network.